How do we relate the apparent illusions at the heart of society to the realities of life? Welcome to the Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we're going to continue our discussion of illusion, which was prompted by Merlin Mowry's interview. We realized that we rushed the ending last time. We said it's a very complex subject, will not adequately resolve today. Well, we're not going to resolve anything today either, but we need to take the conversation a little further. Right. As Merlin says, ideas are tools to think with, and today we're going to try thinking a little harder. So, Steve, what strikes you about the subject of illusion? Well, first of all, we all share illusions. I mean, that was Merlin's most important point. Some are benign, like believing your cat thinks the way you do and understands what you tell him, (laughs) right? Which, you know, is debatable. Other illusions are deeply rooted societal constructs that we take for granted as immutable and part of nature, but which are actually human, humanly created. In the words of Otto Rank, all our human problems with their intolerable sufferings arise from man's ceaseless attempts to make this natural world into a man-made reality, thereby hopelessly confusing the values of both spheres. In this sense, all human values, no matter how real they seem to us, as for example, money, are unreal. Wow. It's a heavy one. It's hard yeah. to get your head around, but but it, we'll it go. It really is. Oh, but we'll go into it. So let's talk for a minute about what. Before we talk about what are illusions, let's talk about what aren't illusions. Good things that would be would be real, at least to some degree, like a tree or a child, right? Or sex. Many things having to do with the body. Food. Food is a real thing when you chew it up and swallow it, right? But we impose names on those things right when you say hot dog that's a thing that almost everyone could know what it is but the two words hot dog is a made-up label for what that is that we all agree that's what it is right also we think about things like sex and children in a very different way from the way dogs do we assume we assume yeah they have symbolic importance to us that would not occur to an animal that does not have the ability to think abstractly. For example, we make children into our report cards on how wonderful we are as people. My child got into Princeton, therefore, I'm a wonderful parent. Right. And the the kid might be neurotic as hell because you drove him his entire life, but you can brag about you're going to take you're going to take the credit anyway. Yeah, it, it bolsters your self-esteem to talk about the success of your child. So your child is a reality, that's true, but he's also a symbol and therefore, in some ways, an illusion. I know it's a little complicated, but that's okay. that's the best I can do with that. Okay. Okay, I follow what you're saying. All right. So to get closer to the truth, we have to question many of our basic observations and assumptions. That's the point. And we're going to do that cautiously and slowly. <laughs> yes. Okay. Because this gets... This gets dicey very quickly. So, here are some examples. Nations. Otto Rank talks about nations and war this way. He says, they are irrational ideologies of immortality. That is, in the man-made conception of survival. In other words, 
We need the illusion of nation for our survival against the bad actors in the world who would do us harm. But okay. But we have to keep in mind that a nation is a construct. It's an illusion. When we pledge allegiance to the flag, well, the reality is you're standing there with your hand on your heart pledging allegiance to a piece of cloth. It's the symbolic nature of the flag that makes that act of pledging allegiance a real thing to you, but it has nothing to do with the natural world. Okay. That would probably be a good place to dig in with people because the flag happens to be a symbol that is of great importance to many people, and they would probably take great offense at calling it a piece of cloth with color on it. Right. But I would say both things are true. It is a piece of cloth with color on it, and it, for many people, carries a symbolic value that's very hard to divorce it from. Right. And I cringe a little bit every time I'd say the Pledge of Allegiance because... Because it mentions God. Well, that too, you know, the one nation under God. So God's an illusion too. So what the hell? Yeah. So how about money? Mm. Boy, that's a big one, isn't it? Isn't it ever? M- money is, when when we interviewed Jamie Arndt, I remember him distinctly saying money has become the new immortality. Oh, yeah. It's entirely human made. It's not a force. And and, and well, it, but it, it seems to have a lot of force. And as you said earlier, when we were talking, it's probably the most universal symbol we have now. It's the one that everybody knows what it is in whatever form or flavor their particular culture has for it. Everybody understands what it is. Right. It's a symbol that you can trade back and forth that causes people to do things that you'd like them to do. Right. So it started out thousands of years ago as a, a way to trade intelligently, fairly, a way yep. to improve commerce among nations, among peoples. I remember the uh, the definition that I got in, ec- in college economics class. It's a medium of exchange. Medium of exchange. It sets yes. relative value between things. Right. That car is worth ten thousand. That car is worth twenty thousand. There theoretically, the other car is worth twice as much somehow. And we only know that theoretically, but we only know that because we're using money as the ruler, as the yardstick. Yeah. When in reality, the the one car is worth more. Because it has more symbolic value yeah, as modes now of here we here we go as modes of transportation, they both get you from point A to point B in the same way with the same amount of efficiency. One may be better at gas mileage, but other than that, the idea that this is a luxury car because it's got a couple of extra doodads. Well, those doodads are nice, but the real difference is symbolic. I can the afford real... this car and my neighbor can't. Yeah. How about that's, that one? That's what it's that's really a... about, isn't it? It's also about your identity. And we said Absolutely. this in another podcast. Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah your identity. I'm sporty. I have a sports car. I go off-road. All that stuff is built into it. That's all symbolic. So yes, a car is a real thing, but it's also an illusion. It's a construct and and the marketing people understand yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to say don't we don't way. we have Madison Avenue to thank for a lot of this, don't we? <laughs> Don Draper and the Mad Men. Mad Men, they're trying to they're trying to dial up the value of one thing over another thing to get people to work harder and invest more of themselves, invest more of their symbolic immortality in the form of money to uh, drive down the street and feel that they're superior to the people who don't have as expensive of a car. Yeah, its value is constructed, and it, but it's 
but it's a human consensus. We all tacitly agree that the Lexus is worth more than the Hyundai. We just all go along with that fiction. And it can vary with the times. It can evaporate. Money can evaporate in an emergency. Oh, yes, that's true. Yeah, as we've seen happen in other countries like Germany in the 20s. And most recently, what was the one you mentioned? Venezuela, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, though. Yeah, they had a major economic upset recently. Yeah. When you have a zombie apocalypse, your money really isn't worth a whole lot at that point. No, it's not. Zombies don't take credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> the way Otto Ronk put it, he says, it's, uh, I might paraphrase a little, it's more than mere economic need or social ambition, which spurs the individual to rise above the mass and become distinguished through wealth, power, or creativity. In such success has expressed the individual need for self-realization and fulfillment in terms of his personal immortality. And that's the key word, immortality. Yep. All these symbols, all these illusions, they all point in that direction. They sure do. So then we get into, so then we get into the concept of wealth. Okay. Wealth is not a natural fact. Again, Ronk sees the psychology of capitalism as an immortality project. The desire for lasting survival expressed in terms of a lasting fortune, which is still controlled by the, quote, will after death. Yeah, let's stop and talk about that for a minute, because that, that was an idea that just got into my head this morning, using the word will. Yep. What, what do you suppose? A responsible person has a, has a will. Yep. They contact an attorney, and they sit down, and they uh, pay them a lot of money, and they decide what they want to happen with their estate after their death, after their demise. And they call it a will. That's what you create is a will. And the word will has a different meaning outside of that legal definition in which it's you're you're kind of, as I said earlier, you're kind of directing people from, from your own grave. There you go. You're instructing the legal machinery on how you want your fortune such as it is, to uh, be distributed to your heirs, as they're called, people who are going to benefit from your having lived. And that's just a very odd thing to think about, especially when you call it. Isn't it weird? It's very weird. Just calling it will is what makes it weird. (laughs) This is my my will that you should do this. It is my will, and you you shall obey it. And you shall obey me even though I'm dead. I'm six feet under. Even though I'm dead, and and I can't have – I don't have any force – Nothing that I can do from from here to make sure like we it's like so many things in society we trust that it's going to happen because it's something we all agree upon we and we all agree on wealth we all agree this is how we do it yeah and and it 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 works because mostly we do it that way that's right that's and right and boy there come some fights I don't think I've ever seen now that I've been alive long enough to have seen lost friends and family. Boy, nothing brings out the worst in people than somebody dying. Yeah, sometimes blood is not thicker than water, is it? Oh my gosh, it's like vultures circling over a <laughs> over an antelope in the desert, you know? Right. Yeah, because to them, wealth is a natural fact. It's a reality. But in reality to us, what we're saying here is, step back a minute, folks. This is a construct. You're dealing with symbols here. And you're willing to... Yeah, well, people are people are very interested in having themselves a big bucket full of those symbols, Steve. Well, yeah. They, they, they don't care 
about our highfalutin talk about illusions. They want to buy a new car. True, but but studies have shown that winners of the lottery are no happier. Oh, that's right. A year after. Oh, some of them are. It, it actually winning huge sums of money in the lottery has ruined more lives than it's improved. Right. So think about what you're saying here. A will can divide families, put people at each other's throats, brother against brother, all over something that a year later will give them no more happiness than they had before. Right. But they're, but, That's true. But they're de- devoted and committed to these symbols. So, any, Absolutely. so in the same way, the economy is an illusion. It's a it's a constructed thing that we're all worried about. Yep. Like everybody, every every newspaper, every news broadcast. What's the state of the economy? Some news channels are devoted to the economy all day long. I know. I it's know. It's just incredible. Say what you want about it being a construct. It sure is an important one, and again, one we all subscribe to, so that we get along together and distribute resources. Not always equi- equitably. Yeah, but then the pandemic comes along and kicks the hell out of your economy. Yeah, and simultaneously your illusions about life. Yeah, like Kirby Farrell put it, a pandemic exposes the limits of culture to protect us. Religions, race superiority, the economy, and science, for example, threaten to turn into fictions. Yeah, and that's that's not something that can happen. Well, those little viruses that you can't even see with the naked eye turn your treasured symbols into fictions. Yeah, they they threaten to do that. We can't allow them to do that. As Becker points out in The Birth and Death of Meaning, you can't expose what he calls the fictional nature of the hero system. Mm. This is this is a regression that is no longer possible for us. We have to have a symbolic hero system in order to function. Right. Without it, it we're we're we, we're in danger. Without it, we're we're ape, we're apes again. Yeah. We're, it's a very dangerous. It's just it's a dangerous path yeah. to walk down. Right. Right. The biggest guy with the with the most guns is is the ruler. But but and that doesn't work that well. But what Kirby is saying, it threatens to turn them into fictions. Well, they already are fictions in a sense. What he's saying is, so he's saying he's saying he's saying is it's threatening to expose yes, them as fictions. Yes, to reveal them as fictions. Yes, exactly right. It's not changing the reality. No, it's pulling away the curtain. You know, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. It's introducing a new reality. The reality, yeah. the reality of the pandemic, and and like we were talking earlier today, was saying, oh, how is the how are different people reacting to the pandemic? Like you were talking about your sister and her husband. Yeah, they're being very, they're following to the letter of the law. Yeah, hunkering down, and they should because they have compromised immune systems, and they would probably be not good candidates for getting that virus. So they really need to do that as anyone with asthma or any kind of uh, respiratory infection, diabetes. You've got to be really, really careful. Yeah, but my son and his girlfriend come up here from Brooklyn and they're driving around and they're going, nobody's wearing a mask. Where are the masks? You know, Goldie and I were out walking yesterday and everybody's out there like there's no pandemic at all. They're playing golf and foursomes. I doubt if those foursomes were all consisted of immediate family members, right? Right. 
they're they're out all together in groups coming to or from basketball games and they're out running together joggers forget it joggers just run right by you social distancing doesn't exist for joggers for some reason and like they want to high five you yeah if you if i guess if you're running fast enough you figure that the, the germans you know can't leap from them to me I, I don't know what the thinking there is but i think it has something to do with living in westport well yeah i i mean nothing what what bad can happen to you yeah you live well, in westport for heaven's sake yeah yeah you're masters of the universe you're a master you're, yeah, they're, yeah, they're yeah. gonna fix you first if there's a problem well i guess that takes us to the next so, social hierarchies yeah, the next one on our list. And yeah, those perfect. those aren't those aren't entirely humanly constructed because they exist in animal societies as well. Right. Um, as the uh, author and uh, I guess you'd say social critic who takes a lot of heat, Jordan Peterson, with his ideas about lobsters, which are <laughs> very very old, and they have very strong hierarchy hierarchical structures. And e- even though the idea of hierarchies on first glance seems, uh, I don't know what you would say, unfair or hurtful uh, to, to the very sensitive nature. Hierarchies make it possible to coexist with each other in a world that everybody would care to live in. Yeah, and Jane Goodall goes into the hierarchical Ooh. structures of apes, ape Boy, societies. That was, that was tough. I, I'm sure you've heard she did not report some of her findings early on because they so conflicted with the narrative that we liked to believe but you know a a roaming band of chimpanzees finding an unprotected one from another clan would literally tear them limb from limb while human beings very upsetting traditional human beings do the same thing i know i know that's what that's why we can't abandon these quote-unquote illusions that we're talking about okay so let's back up a second yes Social hierarchies have a role to play in nature. So then do our own human social hierarchies. But human caste systems, I maintain, are inventions by one group to acquire more advantages over others. And the reason why well, they want more but, and the reason why they want more advantages is because they that's an immortality project. Right. Advantages are not only better food, better sex, bigger house. Yeah, those those are advantages that people strive for. Private aircraft. To make their lives. Yeah, <laughs> private aircraft may, is not a necessity, but, it, you know. Nice. For, it's nice, yeah. But it's uh, the private aircraft is also an immortality project. Come on. A, a big know, one. Yeah, a big one. And, and all of those things that that we consider to be worth striving for. They're immortality symbols. Yep. And this brings us, of course, to the most blatant one in our society. Race. Yes, sir. Right, which in, in a very real sense is completely arbitrary. I remember when Sheldon Solomon was talking about this, he said skin color is one of the things that people point at quickest to identify differences between people. But, like, we all have different hair colors, and we all have different eye colors, and nobody singles those out. Completely arbitrary. To be major. It, it's completely arbitrary. Yep. I'm always talking about Jacques Barzin, one of my favorite historians, and he wrote a book called Race, the Glorious Fiction. Right. I mean, just pointing out this, this very fact. But this is all 
grounded in I think what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, races. You're, you're looking. You're looking for an uh, an out group to set against your in group. And most commentators, most people who who look at race and analyze it or study it, they all agree race is a social construct. But that is not a commonly held view in our population. We look at race as a fact, a fact of nature, as if people of different races were like different species of dog or something. Well, yeah, there's still, I'm sure there's many, many people who are still holding on to that. And there's certainly uh, some basis in biology that you could point to, like the current trend to try to say that there's absolutely zero difference between a male and a female human being. I mean, I, I think I see where they're trying to go with that, but it abandons science so completely well, yeah. that it leaves you very few places to go to have an intelligent conversation. Yeah, okay, but again, we get back to the same exercise we've been in, involved in here. Yes, like a tree, a man's penis is a reality. A woman's vagina is a reality. So in that regard, there are... And perhaps more to the point, her ability to have children, children and his inability to do right. that. However, the constructed identity of male and the constructed identity of female is just that it's an illusion it's a construct i'm taught to be a male yeah from the minute i hit the air and they put me in a blue blanket instead of a pink one and it goes from there all the way on where you have to live up to this masculine identity that's being foisted upon you by society and the woman is also dealing with this that's what people are reacting to one more illusion which is power which is political power now not mechanical power it's it's another transitory human construct right thomas jefferson wrote in the declaration of independence governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed well another way of putting that is governments are illusions. Yeah. We make them up. We make them and up. And we're all like, yeah, we're all so crazy yeah. about what's the government doing and you know who's going to lead the government and all that. And it's like, guys, just back off a second. Let's relax. We make it up as we go along. Right. There are people, I I, I chuckle to myself with, you know, I'm not going to name names, but there are folks who like are so devoted to the Constitution. It's the law of the land, and you can't go beyond the Constitution. And you go, what are you talking about? It's a parchment. Yep. It's hundreds of years old. There are parts of it that are ridiculously out of date. And we've got whole libraries full of law books yes, there are. that are the law of the land. And the Constitution is just one of them. I know. But they don't, they don't undermine that great sentence that you just read. True. I mean, that's, that's kind of how we made it happen. Yeah. Like, it's very, very hard to do what we did in America. True enough. I mean, the odds, the odds are so against it working. Yeah. I mean, it's a freaking miracle that we're still here in any form. <laughs> it really yeah, is. True. And I think you know, now that um, technology is advancing so rapidly, I mean, just... It's a blinding, dizzying speed that, as you say, the, the original ideas that we chopped or hacked out of the bush need to be modified in order to try to keep up with the daily reality of the new 
technological world we live Agreed. in. Agreed. And I think that's I think that has to happen. That's got to happen. Even if they're literally carved into stone, they are still constructs, yep, illusions and are subject to analysis and revision. Yeah. This brings us to our new best friend Lila Rothschild at the Ernest Becker Foundation. We love Lila and it, we love Lila. Hi Lila. In an interview on the Death Hangout podcast, we like those guys too. Yes. She says, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, there are many different ways to cope with death anxiety. Some are maladaptive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And maladaptive, is that's a college-level word. It just means uh, they may not work out <laughs> to be the best right. in the long term. Right. We, you don't really know. And a lot of things you don't know until history proves it one way or the other, whether it's going to be adaptive or not. People certainly do things that are maladaptive in the name of right. and death so, denial. And so some illusions are very positive and very important, as you're pointing out, and necessary, and then others are destructive. Yeah. So Greg Benick, also of the Ernest Becker Foundation, on the same podcast, like a week or so after Lila, he said, I'm probably paraphrasing here, we're not concerned with removing illusions, but with how we can make them better. Yes. And I have to remember a conversation that I'll never forget having with Neil Elgy, who we lost uh, recently when he was out here to to record a series of interviews with us. He was great for saying startling things in a very straightforward manner. And I remember him saying, I'm not saying, he said, I know I need illusions. We all need illusions. We can't live without illusions. He said, what I'm interested in finding is the best illusions I can find. Right, right. He was a gentle man. He was. But 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 had sturdy thinking. Yes. Oh yeah. Strong strong ideas, and and he was a he was a, an independent thinker. And when he got an idea that he thought was really good, boy, he put his money where his mouth is. And he's he's the one who really united all these Becker scholars and and advanced this work as far as we've been able to take it. He supported us financially, as you well remember. Absolutely. And in Yiddish, he would be described as a mensch. Absolutely right. Yeah. So Bennett was pointing out his list of illusions included jobs, the economy, but he also he got into safety and security. Yeah. And he was saying no matter the illusion, it doesn't take away the reality of death. And is talking about yeah, you know, the illusion of sitting on an airplane and assuming that, you know, it's gonna be fine, it's gonna be safe. And there's so many things that can go wrong with that flight. I said one of them, the um the sobriety or lack of alcohol consumption by the pilot, something like that. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. It's like perfect. And um, in one of his talks, Sheldon Sheldon points out that as a tagline to his basic TMT thing, he says that we're our death one of the things we don't like to think about is that our, our death can occur at any moment for reasons that we could neither anticipate nor control. Right. And that is just not a thought that you can have in your conscious mind when you're getting in a car and getting up on I-95 and driving 75 miles an hour with other people around you doing the same. People drive like maniacs on that road and not having any regard for the possibilities what could happen so greg bennick is saying the reality of the pandemic picks apart the illusions and kirby farrell says something very similar he says the pandemic exposes the limits of culture to protect us it threatens to turn our illusions into fictions as i said before and when you and when you said that i, w I wanted to point out that it doesn't 
actually turn our illusions into fictions. Our illusions were already fictions. What it right. threatens to do is make that fact conscious to us. Right. It, it threatens to pull, pull back the curtain like Toto does, uh, exposing the wizard back there who's pulling all the levers and, and cords and making that giant fire spectacle appear which everyone is is so afraid of yeah isn't that a yeah. curiously good illusion for hollywood uh, hollywood is all about illusion isn't it getting back to lila here for a second she asks what is the best possible illusion that doesn't cause harm to other humans that's a that's a noble that's a noble goal a noble one and our answer is me i would ask how would you know since you can't exactly you can't know the future and you can't really know what causing harm is. Right. Beyond a certain point, you don't want to be killing people or making them sick or causing obvious distress. Right. But sometimes what seems to be harm turns out to be good. I'm mentoring a young fellow, and I was telling him about when I was a, a Boy Scout, and I was made to dig a hole uh, for no purpose other than to dig the hole. And it was just because <laughs> I told you to do it, and you've been not dutiful. I learned something from digging that hole. And it, in the moment, it seemed like I hated that guy more than anyone else. But, you know, kind of guys in the military have similar stories. That's the guy that taught me the most. And I was able to survive because of the lessons that I didn't really want to learn at the time I was learning them. <laughs> but what else can we do? You're right. We don't know how to define harm. We don't know how to define or put into words what the common good is, but what else can we do? Well, you have to point out the fact that you don't know what those things are, and you have to put, hopefully, your best minds on it, right. and they have different points of view, and you've got to try to hammer it out. So Lila, like Greg and Kirby, she's saying, because of the pandemic right now, the whole world is under mortality salience, which let me yeah, go ahead. let me jump in and and say again what mortality salience is from our episode with uh, Sheldon Solomon when he's talking about terror management theory and experiments. Mortality salience is when you momentarily remind a person of their mortality. In other words, we we normally crowd that knowledge out of our consciousness, and when you put that back in, you cause the person's behavior to change in predictable and provable ways. Right. Right. So the pandemic that we're all in now is basically having the, the the whole world right now is is in a is in a terror management theory experiment, having our consciousness in, intruded on the idea that we're vulnerable as mortal creatures to disease and possibly death. And like a TMT experiment with death on everybody's minds, the reactions can be things like being more considerate of others. But, yeah, but more often they're the opposite. Right. They're more defensive of their in-group, they're more hostile to out-groups, they're more xenophobic, and they're trying to isolate this one common source of evil. Frequently that source of evil is projected onto the out-group right. and scapegoated so that your own, your own inadequacies can be projected onto the other person who you can then either symbolically or literally kill. Right. So when you see someone in a mask, do you ask if they're rich liberal Democrats intent on robbing hardworking, freedom-loving Americans of their rights while simultaneously trying to embarrass President Trump or ruin his bid for re-election? Okay. 
Or are they wearing masks because they care about others and their own safety? But in either case, we're imposing motives on the people whose minds we can't read. Right. But that's what we're all doing. We're saying, oh, you're wearing that mask because... Yeah. And the other person is saying, no, you're not wearing your mask because, and we get into it. We all do that all the time, though, don't we? But that's like 9-11. That was a more crystalline-focused moment, though. Yes. That was an event in time, and even though the aftermath was arduous and took weeks and months, still, it wasn't a continuous parade of airplanes flying into buildings. <laughs> the, the pandemic is ongoing. Yeah. The threat is there all the time. Yeah. It's it's constant. So we're not attacked momentarily and then recover. We're being attacked perpetually. We were and we don't know when or if we're gonna recover. Yeah, but we were attacked momentarily. We we recovered, but we were still in a state of mortality salience because we were reminded of the attack daily. That's true. That's true. So it's very similar. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. As individuals and societies, we must wrestle with the challenge of balancing individual liberty with the common good. That's, I believe, not completely, but at the heart of this whole left-right dichotomy when we're talking about the pandemic and you have protesters showing up with assault weapons saying, you're taking away my liberty— and then you've got other right. people saying, look what you're doing, to you're affecting the common good. Well, yep. that is something that every individual in every society has to concern himself with or herself. Yeah, that's probably the biggest question that faces in any society, right? And sometimes the two are in alignment, individual liberty and common good. They're in alignment, but sometimes they're in conflict. But we have to remember that both are illusions. Yep. Like, for example, you talk about Sam Harris. Oh, that's right. Sam Harris was saying that he did a 90 minutes on the, the idea that there's no such thing as free will. Right. And I, I don't see how you can have most of the things that you need to have a society, right, right and wrong, individual liberty, the things that we're talking about seems to me predicated on free will. I mean, if somebody kills somebody else, Obviously, they make cases why he was tortured in his childhood or this and that. But the fact is, if you inflict harm on on another person, the fundamental belief is that it has to do with your decision to do that. Right. You you decided to do it, and you did it. And there would, there would be no justice system if we denied the existence of free will. And that's why premeditated murder carries a higher penalty than manslaughter where something happened in the moment by accident but because of that premeditation the decision to do it consciously and carry it out is a worse digression in our mind right right but we know just from our this conversation today that free will is an illusion liberty is an illusion and we don't want to deal with that we as a society do not want to deal with that because it calls into question the entire foundation of who we are as a people and what we're doing to each other well and if it messes that system up to the point where it threatens to collapse then i think that we need to tread lightly down that track you know when we were talking earlier about making changes to what we're doing, and the documents are hundreds of years old and so forth, I'm reminded of the uh, first words spoken in one of my very favorite movies by Robert Zemeckis called Contact. Mm. And it's the father of Jodie Foster's character saying to her, 
small moves, Ellie, small moves, <laughs> which means you don't change things by shaking the whole thing upside down. You, you adjust it, and you adjust it in small ways in a deliberate fashion, and then you see what effect that has. Well, it's the safest way to proceed forward. Understood. And certainly any careful reading of Ernest Becker makes that very plain, that you don't want to expose society, individuals, to death anxiety. No. Bad things often happen when you do. But at the same time, when we look at this this balance between the individual liberty and the common good, we don't know what the common good is. We pretend no. to know, but what we're— Well, and, and we, try, we try hard to know. Right, but what we're really doing is saying, I know what's good for me, and therefore, I know what's good for everybody else, which is yeah. not a safe assumption in most cases. That's a big leap to make. It is, but what, else, but what can you say about the common good? And what can you say about the common good 100 years from now? Like, the environmentalists are saying, well, we've got to do something about the climate change because in 100 years, this is going to happen. Yes, right. according to the computer model. That's what's going to happen. But we don't know that for a fact. We know it. Nope. We know it in a scientific format, and we know it from the data. But all that could change very rapidly, as we all know. And science, no scientist will say, this is a certainty. No scientist says anything is a certainty. So I think we all have to, as a, as a society, sometimes we've got to just take that step back and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. The other side of this question may have some legitimate points to make. Let's listen, because after all, these are all constructs, and constructs can be changed. They can be modified. They can be talked about. Yep. You made a good point when we were talking, I don't know, earlier today, we were talking about libertarian versus socialist. Yes, and I was talking about uh, temperament also, mm -hmm. because uh, temp temperament is one of the biggest predictors of political leanings, mm. conservative as opposed to uh, progressive or liberal, whatever term you want to lose. And I think we were saying that libertarian idea is probably the most conservative, the way we use that word today, notion of I'll take care of myself and you take care of yourself and screw anybody who can't take care of themselves. I mean, that's really what they say in a harsh way. And then if you go completely the other way, where we're all supposed to take care of everybody, probably a socialist notion, right? North Korea, Cuba. Everybody the same, nobody's different. But you don't dare stand up and express your opinion about the government or the, the supreme ruler, or you'll wind up in prison or worse. Right, not if you want to keep living. So to my way of thinking, the libertarians, I, I agree with 50% of what they say and believe. They have a good point. Liberty is extremely important to me as an American. Me too. And I also think that the socialists have an excellent point. About 50%. About 50% or so. I, I fully subscribe to the notion that the government should take care of its people, and especially the richest government yeah. of the richest country in the world, one would think. One would think. So, well, And that's something that a lot of people don't like to look at, is at any time there's been an argument, a disagreement going on for as long as this disagreement has been going on among smart people on both sides of it, you got to acknowledge that both, like you just did, that both sides have some valid points. Yeah, but both sides should take a look at Canada and parts of Europe that have, I think, dealt with these questions and are much more in balance 
the problem with America is we're out of balance. We're tilted too much in the direction of, and I don't want to use the word libertarian because that's because it's a bit capital L libertarian. That's a political party, but right, but too much in the direction of the individual, the individual liberty. Too much in the direction of Margaret Thatcher saying, "There's no such thing as society. There are people, and there are families." Well, that's just plain stupid. Ayn Rand. Yeah, Ayn Rand, yeah. In her objectivism. Right. Well, and for many people, if not most, maybe listening to this would agree with your point of view, but they're still, I can hear them screaming now. Well, let them scream. About social programs and taking my money and taxes and giving it to whatever. Yeah, well, death and taxes come to everyone. I mean, <laughs> they're both, <laughs> they're both uh, points of view. Pay your taxes and shut up. Anyway. Right. So Greg Bennick posed this whole list of questions that- I wrote down a lot of them. Those were good. How can we better treat one another? How can we live better? How do I support my community? How do I maintain psychological equanimity? How to make better illusions? How can we be better? Can we hopefully move toward better lives and come back into balance and be on a trajectory toward betterment? Yeah. yeah wow. And I, I like that uh, concept of trajectory Again, an illusion, one that Martin Luther King described. The arc, the arc of history is what he, the, the phrase he used. Ben, and this is what the best minds are supposed to be doing in any forward-thinking society at any point in time. How can we be better? Well, it's hopeful. And the, the quote I was, it is the, hopeful. The quote I was trying to pull out of my head here was, uh, the arc of history bends toward justice. Oh, I love, I love that. I love that. And there are many people, but many people would say, no, it doesn't. I know. Surprise. I know. It it's just, just doesn't. nice to hear the words, you know? <laughs> I'm sorry to say it that yeah. plainly, but it's just <laughs> nice to hear something that hopeful, you know? Because hope is... Uh, it's in short supply. It is. And don't forget, it's the last thing that fell out of Pandora's box, isn't it? I didn't remember that, but that sounds good. Yeah, and which puts hope in a very bad light, you know? But we can't even really agree on things like better, like what is better. Well, that's the kind of stuff that you have to hammer out. Right. With intelligent, open minds who are interested, as Merlin would say, getting new ideas, new tools to be able to think better. That's what I think a lot of people are trying to do right now, certainly what you and I are trying to do. And I, I don't think we have a choice. What else can we do? What, what else can we do? We, we give people tools to think with. Right. We're not going to answer all these questions now, but I think it's really important to just get them out on the table. Just point out that these are questions and that these are issues and that they need to be responded to. It's our job in a democracy as its citizens. Here comes the music. Okay. Join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubconversations.com and support us on Patreon. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.